0: and welcome to another installment of Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a lot of eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am, as always, one of your humble correspondents and hosts. My name is John Steinberg, and I am joined in tandem by my co-host, who goes by the name of
1: Santino Maione, back again for another great episode of Visionaries. John, you picked our words to live by this week, as we always start off our show with this segment. What was the quote that you chose for our words to live by?
0: Here's the quote. The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. That comes to us courtesy of landmark, iconic, short story writer, novelist, and all-around literary extraordinaire, Flannery O'Connor. When you hear that quote, what comes to mind? Feelings that it invokes, uh, directions that it uh, takes you down.
1: So for that quote, honestly, the first thing that I really think of is just accepting the reality of your situation. The reality of your situation and the situation that you're in is pretty much always going to remain the same. You cannot expect for that aspect to change. So, within this quote, really what is being said is that instead of trying to expect the reality of your situation to change, instead of trying to expect you know the world around you to change, you have to accept what is happening and make the change yourself and change the way that you react and respond to the matter or whatever situation you're in and just to the, to the truth and reality of what's going on. Um, that's really what I thought initially. I don't know about your thoughts about it. Cause I know you did mention to me off the show that this is one of, you know, th- this comes from one of your personal heroes and this is a quote that really means a lot to you. So I'd love to hear more about why you picked it and just what it means to you. So Flannery
0: O'Connor is someone that. First-year composition teachers often introduce college students, to, And then if you continue down a literary path in your education, you're going to continuously encounter her work. So she was on my radar from quite some time. She's been on my radar for quite some time. But when I learned that she actually passed away at the age of 39, from lupus a condition that also her father also died of the same condition her work career legacy it all sort of took on a bit of a new meaning for me she wrote from the age of I believe she was diagnosed in her early 30s and she was told yeah at the age of 32 that she Had a very limited time, not 32. In her mid 20s, she was told that she only had seven years, give or take, by a doctor. She wrote like there was no tomorrow, because in her mind, there was no tomorrow. She had been given an artificial deadline by a physician, by a doctor. And she would lean on stuff like this quote for strength, for guidance, to compel her to continue writing, continuing on with her work and making the landmark contribution to literature that, um, that she was able to make. So the quote here to me is her accepting the lupus diagnosis really coming to terms with the medical condition that she had no control over, no say in, something that happened to her. And rather than wallow in self-pity or turn to substances to attempt to try to mask the pain or deal with things, she fought her illness squarely. And she fought it in the best way possible by continuing on with the work that she felt she was put on this earth uh, in order to do. So don't feel sorry for yourself or ask, why me? Why me? Why did this happen to me? None of that is productive. You cannot change it. You have to accept things and do your best with that information moving forward
1: absolutely and I, again it's it's i love how we kind of tie these things in unintentionally because i think with this quote and the guest that we had on the show we still were pushing and promoting this message of being able to adapt adaptation adjusting to the situation that you've been dealt in life that really is the message i think probably one of the most if not the most prominent message that we try to um, put out here on Visionaries for our listeners. And once again, with our words to live by and the guests that we're going to have on in a little bit, we really do promote that message. And I think it's great that we continue to have that message throughout our show, within our show, even with going through all these episodes, and we're still finding ways to get that message out there.
0: And I, the work of Flannery O'Connor has been kind of my, uh, this was a woman who uh, came from the rural South. We're talking 1925 to 1964, Georgia. So some of her work has come under fire in the last couple of years for its content, maybe depictions of certain characters. But I think it's important for folks to keep context in mind and not evaluate the work of somebody who was writing over 70 years ago don't compare that with 2022 and remember that again, this was a woman who wrote like there was no tomorrow because in her mind, there wasn't going to be a tomorrow necessarily. And she didn't ask why me, she continued. And um, that's why I thought this quote would uh, prove instructive for our conversation today.
1: hundred percent. Definitely agree. We'll move on to our next segment, Hamprints Hall of Fame. I got to pick our latest inductee for this week, and I chose the one-armed high school basketball player, Hansel Emanuel. Now, John, I know you had never heard of Hansel Emanuel before. I'll give our listeners a little recap on kind of his story, um, how he lost his arm and kind of where he's at right now in his life. So – he is like I mentioned a one-armed high school basketball player. He lost his arm at the age of 6 in an unfortunate accident. Actually, a wall fell down on top of his left arm and he was trapped under there for 2 hours until his dad eventually came and found him and rescued him. But when he had to when he went to the hospital, they had to amputate his left arm due to the fact that, you know, of the incident that it was trapped under the wall for so long. Um so that was kind of what happened at a younger age and now at this moment point in his life He is the first one-armed basketball player ever to receive a Division I college basketball offer, and not just one. He's received three so far, one from the University of Memphis, one from Tennessee State, and one from a smaller school, Bethune-Cookman in Florida. So he hasn't accepted any offer yet because he is still in high school. He's still waiting on more offers to come through if they do, but in my opinion, just the fact that he's been getting these offers from a school like the University of Memphis, who recently had one of the top prospects in college basketball for, the, for a school like that, who's coached by Penny Hardaway, who I'm sure John knows. And if you're listening and you're a sports fan, you might know who that is. But for him to get an offer to a school like that, I really just think shows his perseverance and shows how talented he is. And I thought it was an interesting story just to talk about for our Handprints Hall of Fame. And again, like John always says, like I always say, you imagine Hansel Emanuel down in the dirt, placing his hand and placing his print in, right in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater, enshrining him forever. So John, what did you think of this inductee? A truly
0: inspirational story. A great anecdote for our audience uh, to become familiarized with. This type of thing should never happen. The whole system is set up so that a gentleman with one arm, this should, again, (laughs) shouldn't be possible. But as is the case so often with the folks that we love to highlight on the program, in particular in our Handprints Hall of Fame segment, he has made the impossible possible even more so in the past we've talked about jim abbott the former baseball player who threw a no-hitter in spite of only having the use of one arm we've talked about jake olson the visually impaired long snapper from usc zion clark but there's something about the speed of basketball the impact that you need your arms, in theory, on a basketball court in order to pass and dribble, uh, effectively play defense and guard the opponent. And Mr. Emanuel has demonstrated that you can do that even if you have the use of but a single arm. It's a really incredible story. It is definitely still being written, as Santino, you mentioned. He was offered a scholarship by Penny Hardaway from the University of Memphis, a very lucrative offer for any aspiring college basketball player, let alone one who originally hails from the Dominican Republic, who's only been in the United States a short time playing competitive basketball. The whole thing is truly dazzling. The type of stuff that wins actors and actresses Academy Awards uh, if they perform the role correctly. Uh, A truly great story.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, honestly, part of the reason why I wanted to choose him, like you said, is that you ask anybody, "Oh, do you think somebody with one arm could play ba- could play basketball?" They'd all think you're crazy and tell you like you're out of your mind. There's no way that's possible. Like you said, it is. They, they would say it is impossible. And you know, watching his highlights, you see these dunks he's doing. He's taking off from just inside the free throw line doing these one, these windmill dunks he's you know doing these crazy dribble moves behind the back between the legs getting past defenders like it's mesmerizing and captivating to watch him play basketball just because you've never seen anything like it. And, and truly you, you have never seen anything like it. And I would recommend for anybody who is into basketball, even if you're not, this is a kid that you want to watch and just get a glimpse to see how he plays basketball, because it's fascinating to watch how he's had to, I've watched like practices that he's attended, um, like his workouts. It's fascinating to see the way that he has to adapt. And again, we're going back to this point of adaptation, but how he's had to adjust his game and, adapt to be able to fit his his situation and fit the fact that he only has one arm. So again, I would recommend for anybody to go watch this kid play basketball because it is truly incredible. And I cannot wait to see him playing at the Division I level and see him compete against you know the best of the best at that level of college basketball. It's going to be incredible to watch.
0: Yeah, very exciting. And we look forward to following his continued exploits and achievements, Mr... Good. Is it Hansel or Hansel?
1: uh, Hansel Emanuel.
0: Couldn't help but think of Zoolander for a second, but (laughs) Hansel Emanuel. Yeah. You are our latest inductee into the illustrious Handprints Hall of Fame.
1: Absolutely. We'll move on to our next segment, Profiles and Courage. John, if you'd like to introduce the guest that you chose to come on our show this week, who's going to be joining us today?
0: We're going to be speaking with a dear friend of mine. His name is Gary Dodds. And he has one heck of a story to tell. And now we are joined by our guest. His name is Gary Dodds, a very successful employee at Avery and Foster Agency in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. A dear friend of mine, known each other for quite some time. And I thought it might be instructive to have Gary on to talk with us a bit about bouncing back some of the things that happened to him in his own life and how he has managed to overcome those obstacles. So, Gary, would you mind telling us about what
2: happened?
0: It was four years ago, correct?
2: Correct. Um, so four years ago, uh, almost to the date, uh, it was June 6, uh, 2018, I suffered a cardiac arrest um, while at, uh, while at my workplace, uh, different workplace than, uh, than intro, but, um, just sort of out of nowhere preparing for a meeting, um, like I normally do on a, on a Wednesday it was a Wednesday. And next thing I know, I, I woke up in the hospital, uh, some, I think three days later. So I, uh, wasn't quite sure what, uh, what had happened. Um, don't have a whole lot of recollection of those, uh, days surrounding that. But, uh, you know, obviously a, a, a very scary uh, incident in, in, in my life and, and come to find out it happened again uh, two years after that. So, so just two years ago as well. So it's happened twice now. Uh, I've sort of uh, beaten, uh, beaten death, if you will. The first time was, was a bit more severe and a bit more scary. So, um, you know, two incidents where, uh, where I can say that I've, I've certainly bounced back, uh, you know, as best as I could. So, when
0: the first incident happened in June of 2018, were you expecting it at all? Any sort of warnings from doctors or physicians, or did it come as a complete and utter shock?
2: Yeah, the latter. Um, You know, I I always try to maintain um, a pretty good, healthy lifestyle. Um, I think that's probably the thing that. There's two things that people often either comment on or ask about, um, you know, post these these incidents. Um, and one of those is, wow, I can't believe it happened to Gary. You know, he's the healthiest guy that I know, um, which then leads to their own, uh, you know, reckoning of, you know, maybe I shouldn't uh, always pass up that piece of uh, cake or something. But no, it came out of the uh, came out of the blue. Uh, absolutely nothing um, prior to this that would even be of note of of any kind, um, which makes it a little bit worse um, for, for myself or maybe for others cuz you know I, I i quite literally was was dead for for just under 2 minutes uh and then in a coma for a few days post but um you know it, it may have softened the blow a bit if that's uh, even the case if if there was maybe a, a preconceived uh, issue but uh completely out of the blue um that day was normal as as any other day and uh just so happened that you know it happened around 2:45 p.m. on a on a wednesday and changed my life forever
0: so let's talk a little bit about that. Following
2: the cardiac, or
0: the first cardiac arrest episode, you said you were in a coma for three days. You come out of it. You get the diagnosis. How did it change your life following the uh, the incident?
2: Yeah. Um, so this might not be this is this is the second question that that people always want to know. Um, so there's two answers. One, it, it, it didn't. Um, and we can explore that uh, in terms of kind of where I'm from and and and, and how I was was brought up and, and some of the obstacles that I've, you know, maybe overcome um, overcame since then. But it, it certainly changed, you know, for the folks around me. Um, right, uh, I, I'm very close to, you know, a tight knit group of uh, of friends and <clears throat> and a small group of uh, for family members. Obviously, I have a a longtime girlfriend of. Oh, geez, she'd probably yell at me if I didn't know how long, 14 years, perhaps. Um, so for myself, you know, it, it didn't change a lot um, the, the first time, right? And, and part of that is is because of the actual physical limitations of, I, I just don't remember. I, you know, it was a Wednesday. I, I it, it, it was almost as if I took a, a five or six day nap, woke up and, and felt okay. Um, now, as an aside, I, I did have uh, surgery, uh, a sort of heart surgery. I had a a pacemaker, uh, implanted, uh, next to my chest, which is, is sort of a big deal. So that was taken, had some taken getting used to, but, uh, you know, outside of that, um, I, I, I think the person that I was going into, uh, this incident maybe prepared me for, for an obstacle such as this, um, you know, cause it was something that happened to me and there, I couldn't go back. I couldn't rewind the clock. I, as I mentioned, there was nothing, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't practicing a, a, a poor lifestyle, um, you know, from an exercise standpoint or nutrition standpoint. So I think I was doing anything and everything I could to prepare for a situation like that, hoping that nothing, you know, would ever come of it uh, obviously. But um, so people often get a bit, I think they they frown upon a bit uh, when I tell them that it didn't really change me, um, you know, a whole heck of a lot. Um, And I think people more are asking about it spiritually uh, I'm not the most spiritual person, uh, or a religious person. Um, so it didn't, you know, it didn't change my, my philosophy on life too much. Um, again, I, and I think that's due to the person that I was, you know, going into the incident, uh, the second time around, um, I do remember about uh, just about everything. So that one was a bit more, uh, you know, on the nerve, if you will. Uh, so that one was a bit more scary and, and especially cause it happened twice, you know, I, I, I don't want to die. So, you know, that one was, was a bit more scary for me, but, um, I think the, in, the person that I was going into the situation allowed me to, to bounce back from it, um, you know, maybe quicker than, than, than most, uh, but it did take taken some getting used to.
0: In terms of getting used to things, your story reminded me of being diagnosed when I was a teenager, um, with this retinitis pigmentosa and told I was going to be completely blind by the age of 35. And what it did for me, it inspired me to basically go, well, there's this existential clock that's ticking in a place I can't see and I can't hear, but I know that it's ticking. And I've got until I was told the age of 35, until I was going to be completely blind. So I put this mm, artificial ceiling on my life as I have to get absolutely everything done that I ever wanted to do by the age of 35. But it doesn't sound like something that radical, that outcome shifting, that perspective tilting happened to you. What did you lean on, though, maybe in some of your uh, weaker moments, the more challenging times? I think a lot of people listening to this want to know you are a very healthy man in your early 30s, and you have multiple cardiac arrest episodes. How exactly did you get through it all from a mental
2: perspective? Yeah, uh, so that's a great question. So you know, there's a couple things, and, and I can kind of talk about them a bit. Um, you know, I, my father and, and his father um, both died at a young age uh, from cancer, um, early 50s that's always kind of been in the back of my mind that, you know, do things come in threes, right? I I I am, I'm named after both of those individuals. I'm, you know, Gary Dodds, the third. So I don't know if I've always thought in some part of my mind that I've had, I I have a short shelf life, which you know might be a bit morbid, but, you know, I've always had that in my, in my mind to sort of take into account that, you know, I too, uh, and and to be honest um, with the listeners, uh, you know, John, you and I have talked about that story many times about uh, about your your uh, attempt to try to do everything that you could by a certain age. uh, And that's played a big part in me as well. Um, I I take that. I try not to take the things for granted that, you know, that others might not have. um, And I try to really do the best that I can with with what was given to me. Um, The thing that uh, scares me the most or bothers me the most, if you will, uh, from the incidents that happened, it's not so much what it did to me. It's it's what it did to the people around me. Um, you know, I'm always worried and scared of of hurting others, um, you know, when I don't have the, you know, capacity or the control to to change it. So I, I didn't come out of these situations <clears throat> worried about my own self. I, I I worried about those around me that, you know, I mean, and again, this is probably a bit more detailed than, than needed, but you know, I, I remember thinking well, man, if I, if that would have been it for me, you know, if I, if, 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 I would have died, uh, you know, what would have happened, you know, uh, Melissa, my, my, my longtime girlfriend, you know, she would have had to go and clean out my book collection and clean out my closet. And, and those real specific details, those are the mental parts I think you talk about that, that really affect me. Um, I have to control the controllables, um, as best as I can, right. It's something that happened to me. I couldn't have changed anything all I can do is, is practice to be the best individual that I can and, and, and support those around me. Um, but those are the times when, you know, I may get down a bit or, or, you know, it becomes, you know, it hits a nerve is when I think about the small details that, you know, one of these two occasions, if it would have been, um, you know, more severe and, 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 you know, I may have passed away. Um, you know, what would that have done to the individuals around me? um, you know, mom, sister, uh, girlfriend, friends, those sort of things. Right. And, and those are the most difficult parts. Um, but, you know, I think for me, it's just trying to be as mentally strong as I can. Um, because the last thing I'd want to do is get down and then the others around me also do that. So, you know, I just try to put it all on my shoulders as best as I can and, and, and continue doing what I think got me to that stage in the first place was, was just try to be resilient, um, uh, as much as I possibly could.
0: And, I'm going to turn it over to Santino here in a second, but you come from a very small town, uh, Parsons, Kansas. I'm not sure what the population is, but it's a pretty small place. And I know that your childhood uh, and growing up in a place like Parsons, maybe some of the expectations that folks generally have uh, who come out of a town such as Parsons and what you've been able to do in your life despite those expectations, uh, that has also helped you out a bit. So I'm going to turn it over to Santino. Santino, I know you had some questions for our, uh, for our guest
1: here. Yeah, really, I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from just, you know, listening to you guys go back and forth for the first few minutes here is that you had to learn just kind of how to adapt after these two instances happened. And a big thing that we always talk about on Visionaries is – Sometimes in life you get thrown situations and you are you just have no choice but to have to adapt and to adjust the way that you go about things and the way that you think about things, the way you live. And I think it's really empowering for our audience to hear yet another great example of someone who has had to deal with something in their life and managed to make whatever adjustments necessary and just maintain that mindset of, you know what, I just have to be able to control what I can control and that's what I have to be okay with. So it's great that we're able to kind of hear that again from one of our other guests. Um, The main question I really had in terms of John kind of mentioned before I, before he threw it over to me, you come from a very small town in Kansas. Um, How have you been able to achieve many of the things that, you know, you wanted to achieve in life? You've been with your current uh, girlfriend for 14, you said about 14 years. Um, Like, how have you just been able to achieve everything that you've wanted in life where you're working now how have you gotten to the point where
2: you are yeah um you know the simple answer is is fear from a small being from a small town um you know the population i think has dwindled since i was a, a kid um it's it's somewhere around seven thousand eight thousand now you know just a uh, you know mostly white small midwestern um town um you know not too far away from uh, north of dallas but you know, fear is, was a big motivator for me. Um, you know, I love my family very much. Uh, and, and I just knew from an early age that I didn't want to continue that cycle. Um, again, and and any of my explanation here, um, hopefully isn't taken as a negative connotation to anything that they've done because they've been such a huge, <clears throat> such a huge influence on me, especially my mother. Um, I come from a single parent household. Um, you know, my dad was, was sort of, um, you know in and out a bit uh as as I was growing up uh, I'm the oldest of of two uh, my sister is just a year and a half younger than me so I knew from an early age that that and to be honest with you uh and this is a big reason why uh, John and I have become terrific friends um we share a love of of culture and, and and pop culture and film and movies and and music um and I think I just however it developed from an early age I learned and was able to you know broaden my horizons that I don't think you often get being from a small town. Um, you know, you don't get the opportunity to go to a New York City or a San Francisco or a Los Angeles or wherever it is. So you have to see those places through through culture, through, through film, um, you know, all those sort of things. And I think for me, I knew that if I didn't do something drastic, uh, for a lack of a better word, then the cycle was going to kind of continue, right? I was just going to uh, no, no one on that side of the, my family uh, had, had graduated college uh, or, or community college. We, we do have a small community college where I'm from. Um, so, you know, the odds of, of doing anything that I've done over the past 10 years of my life were, you know, it is next to none. Right. I'm, I'm not growing up in the south side of Chicago, but you, you don't really get the opportunity to to move to a bigger city and to, you know, see the things that I've been able to see or, or, or travel the places that I've been able to go. and. um you know, do, do some of those things that have been exciting, but for whatever reason, and, and I don't, it's not a great answer. I don't know how I developed it other than just, just the culture and, and knowing that if I didn't do something to break the cycle of, you know, a generation who grew up mostly poor and then their kids, you know, maybe the same, but a little bit, uh, a little bit better, their kids, you know, just sort of the same thing. Um, I love where I'm from, uh, it's a big driver for me. I, I sort of always hold the duality in my mind. From that, you, where I was from raised me, it, it taught me everything. But at the same time, th- I, I knew I was capable of, of so much more. And I knew, from like I said, from an early age, that if I wanted to to do these exciting things and see any kind of success financially or, um, you know, just just personally, I had to do something outside of what everybody else was doing. And, um, you know, I had the confidence to do it. And, and, and we're here now, thankfully, because of some of those things. Um, and I, I have the, you know, I have the ability to think now that any future kids that I have, or <clears throat> you know, even, even nep- nieces and nephews can see the things that we were able to do to sort of get out of that situation to a much better much much more prosperous um lifestyle that we have now um and and hopefully they can continue doing that as well for for their kids so it's uh it's something that's probably the the most near and dear to my heart and 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 one of the reasons why i love talking about it um and so plenty of difficulties but i think also kind of bringing a full circle it's what allowed me to to get through those those health incidents the way that i did because you know you sure (laughs) death is never the fun part or or anything like that but you know i've faced plenty of challenges before, right. And, and, and knew that I could come out as uh, you know, a stronger individual.
1: Definitely. Um, My last question to you, the, the last question I'm going to ask at least in terms of people that may be going through something like, The experience that you had firsthand, what advice would you have just about overcoming challenges, whether it could be someone, because obviously our podcast, we focus on people maybe maybe dealing with, you know, it could be blindness, whatever disability it may be, or just they have some unexpected circumstance come into their life and they're struggling on how to handle it and how to overcome it. What advice would you have as somebody who's dealt with that firsthand?
2: Yeah, um, I think it's two phrases that, that, that John will know well. Um, it, it's control the controllables and trust the process. And I mean, you know, both of those quite literally. Um, there was nothing that I could do, and, and oftentimes nothing any of us can do when, a, when a, an accident or an incident or a diagnosis gets thrown our way um, that we can control, right? I, I, there was no button to turn off a cardiac arrest prior to it happening. All I could do was go, okay, this was thrown to me by whatever fate. Um, now I can control how I adjust and adapt from here. And that's a lot easier said than done. But when you think about the things that you're at, that are actually in your control, which oftentimes we don't, we don't give credit to luck, um, or the opposite of luck, um, or the negative side of luck, I should say, uh, enough. Um, so sure. You know, something bad happened to me, right? That's, that's no one ever wants that, but, I can let it control my life. Um, I can let it affect how I treat others or how I go about doing, you know, my day to day or, or professionally. Um, or I could not, I I chose to not to. Right. And I think if, if you have that mindset or you can kind of start to start to develop that mindset of, of being able to control what you actually can control, right. If it's a different diagnosis, right. If it's, if it's blindness, if it's anything else, you know, there's certain things that you can do. Um, it's, and Santino. I don't know your full story, but it's it's the thing I love about John the most. Right, not to pat uh, one of the, the hosts on the back here, but um, he he decided to control what he could control and 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 do the best job that uh, that he could with uh, a diagnosis that he had no control over. Right, he didn't sign up for that, but he he took the ability to to want to do things that said you know, hey, I have a shelf life of of, of x years before perhaps I go fully blind. Right, and and I've I've I learned that from when we first became friends um, and that's become a, a great, you know, tentpole in my life. So I think if you can have that outlook and just be as positive as you as you can be, um, you know, other things will sort of fall in place. And, and like I said, you can trust the process.
1: Yeah. Well, we I,
0: want to. Th- oh, sorry, sorry, you know, go.
1: you're good. No, I was just going to quickly say like, and you know, you shouting out John. I've had the the firsthand experience of just because I was in Los Angeles for an internship in the spring semester and we were doing the show together while I was out there. And we had like, we had met up a few times, gotten food um, and he just being in the presence with him, seeing kind of how he has to navigate LA. It was pretty insane how he was just able to have that mindset of, all right, we, you know, he adapted to his situation, like you said, and he controlled what he could control and, Yeah, so I'm just kind of saying that I agree in terms of what I've seen in the short time that I've known him just from that same perspective that, yes, he has had that kind of same mindset of just control what I can control and trust the process, like you said, those two phrases.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, So we want to
0: thank Gary Dodds so much for coming on Visionaries. Before we let you go here, Gary, one final question. As a diehard Lakers fan that you are, Does it annoy you in any way, shape or form that the phrase trust the process is now no longer really attributed to one Kobe Bean Bryant, but rather the 76ers of Philadelphia?
2: Mm. Um, No, it doesn't. Um, And and I'm I'm glad that you could get that jab in there before we go. But uh, (laughs) absolutely not. Um, I think, uh, you know, as a as a diehard Lakers fan, as a as a long-time Kobe uh, fan. Um, I think hopefully he'll be remembered for, for a few other things than, than that part. But, uh, again, kudos to you and, and hopefully to all the listeners. It didn't start with Joel Embiid and, and the Sixers. It did start with, uh, with Kobe Bryant, I believe, um, <clears throat> as it relates to the zeitgeist of kind of what we're talking about. So uh, now that that's on the record, I feel like I've done my, uh, I've done my job of, uh, of making sure that's well known. But, uh, hey, shout out to Joel Embiid, who's, uh, who went to Kansas like I, like I did as well. So um, if, it's, if it's in somebody else's hands uh, that went to, uh, to KU, then uh, all the better. Awesome, awesome.
0: Okay, well, again, Gary, thanks so much for coming on Visionaries and uh, having a word with us.
2: Hey, thank you guys so much. And uh, I love what you're doing with the podcast and uh, the message that you guys are getting out there. So thanks for, uh, for having me.
1: Thank you, Gary, so much for coming on the show. I think your tr- story was truly inspiring for our listeners, and it was great to hear of the things that you've been able to overcome, and I think our listeners were, are able to take away a lot from your story. John, what about you?
0: Absolutely. A lot of that, some of that I knew, but some of it I didn't. Uh, that is a topic that we've addressed, but never completely probed in any way like uh, we just did so his perseverance and continued belief in himself as he said trust the process uh, that's something that folks can learn from put into practice in their own lives and hopefully emerge as content and uh, you know happy as 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 Gary is and I Also wanted to mention that he and his longtime partner, they just bought their first house. So now they are homeowners in uh, a suburb right outside of Dallas, Texas. And um, yeah, very thankful to Gary for coming on.
1: Yeah, truly. Thank you so much, Gary. We'll move on to our next segment, respect and representation in the media. I selected the movie that we were going to be looking at this week, and I chose all I see is you starring Blake Lively. um, And this movie really, in my opinion, or sorry, Blake Lively and Jason Clark as well. But I chose this movie because it seemed a little interesting when I read the description and just kind of like the about page of what the movie really the, the main focus of the movie, what it was about. It was about a woman named Gina, who she is now blind, but wasn't always um, through the conversations you hear in the movie, you get flashbacks that reveal she lost her sight and her parents in a deadly car accident uh, when she was a teenager. And come to find out really the kind of the premise of it is there's this doctor, Danny Huston, who has a surgical cure um, to allow Gina to get her eyesight back and recover part of her, uh, like part of her eyesight. Um, and the operation is performed in the movie. And Gina now kind of enters this world of being able to see again. And it's really an interesting premise because, you know, I think John and I have kind of referenced this before about, you know, procedures and surgeries that can be done to bring back a person's eyesight. Um, and just like kind of how, if that is realistic, if it's not. So, John, I was curious, your thoughts. Did you enjoy the movie? What did you think of it? Was it a you know, good selection? What are your, what were your thoughts?
0: Definitely an interesting one. Uh, I had seen the film a number of years ago. This comes to us courtesy of director Mark Forster, probably most famous for his Academy Award winning, real downer of a production, uh, Monsters Ball, which garnered Halle Berry an Oscar. But then he's also done stuff like uh, World War Z, Finding Neverland. So he has worked on projects whose tone is all across the board, all all over the place. And here, it's a little bit of the same thing. Uh, We do have some sweeter moments, but this is a little bit of a backdoor erotic thriller with this whole blindness component sprinkled in. And, you know, it highlights something that I was really happy uh, to be able to talk about on this podcast, which is, okay, we have to spoil the movie a little bit in order to have a, uh, the, the conversation here. So she does have this procedure which restores some of her eyesight. Now, she's been married to a gentleman who we sort of learn has been more or less using her blindness against her throughout their marriage. We understand that he wants his wife to be completely dependent on him, relying on him, and subject to his sort of whims and desires. But as her eyesight is restored and she gains more independence, her husband doesn't handle it very well. So he actually takes it upon himself to take some eye drops that were given to Gina by her doctor in the film to continue the treatment with her eyes. He takes those eye drops and uh, does a little bait and switch, pours out the medicine, filling up the little bottles with water instead. Now she figures this out and there is ultimately a confrontation between the couple. But this idea of taking advantage of someone's perceived inability, think speaking to another person in the presence of someone who's deaf and going, oh, well they can't hear, so it doesn't matter anyway. Same deal goes for blindness. I told a story once on this podcast about a gentleman who didn't accost me uh, on a train, but he definitely like, was moving in front of me. He was basically trying to gauge whether or not uh, I was faking. And this type of stuff, this, oh, well, they can't see, so what does it matter? Or... They're dependent on me. So rather than "Mm, they're expecting this, well, they're not going to see anyway. So what does it matter? Clearly, I can get away with this. It's actually something that happens in the disabled community. People do sometimes take advantage of members of the disabled community for their individual disabilities. And here it brings out a version of Gina, the Blake Lively character, that you know we're not sure whether or not she would have become this person if she weren't faced with a spouse who were consistently trying to maneuver behind her back to manipulate so that he can control her every waking decision. It was really, really fascinating uh, to use that, something that happens in the disabled community as kind of the linchpin for the climax of the movie. So we often talk here about, okay, well, was this an exploitative uh, examination of blindness or does it do an accurate, reasonable job of showcasing the disease and the people who live with it? And here, I think it does. It doesn't seem like some of the movies and uh, television shows that we've covered in the past. It doesn't seem like one of the bad ones, uh, as it were, that really just sprinkles in a character with visual impairments as something of a device. Here, it's the driving force for Gina's actions and um, is the engine of uh, of the plot and how it's ultimately resolved.
1: I agree with you. I think it's one of those better movies like you said in terms of the fact that they're not just like throwing it in there as a random character. They kind of the movie is centered around that character who is dealing with the with, with the visual impairments and I, I like the point that you brought up about the feeling, feeling you can take, feeling like you can take advantage of somebody that is dealing with a visual impairment or a disability and how you kind of, again, like related that back to stories that you've, or situations that you've encountered in your own life. But the movie, the movie really does tackle that in a good way. And I think that plays into the, to the, um, to the reasons as to why it's better than a lot of movies that we've analyzed before in terms of the fact that it's not just utilizing it as a, Oh, look at this character. Okay. We're going to throw this in here to further, again, further the story along, get to the end of the movie, get to the main point without actually really addressing it or putting a lot of emphasis on it, if that makes sense. So I did, and I enjoyed the movie itself. I think it was a well-made movie, a good movie. Um, I've seen Blake Lively in a few other things. I think it was one of her better performances as opposed to some other things I've seen uh, her in before. But overall, I thought the movie was good. And I did, again, like you said, enjoy the way they they utilized and incorporated blindness within the movie. I think this is one of the better ones we've looked at. And how the blindness brings out
0: the worst version of the husband in this movie, the Jason Clark character. It exposes all of his insecurities and inadequacies, whereas Gina, the Blake Lively character, she's able to mount the challenges and adapt, become the version of herself that she aspires to be, as opposed to allowing the blindness to dictate the course of every single waking decision that um that she's able to make so we're gonna go ahead and uh provide our let's call them uh a metaphorical thumbs up here i, I think from from both of us Definitely. thumbs up
1: yeah
0: yeah so all i see is you uh it is streaming on hbo max for those that would like to check it out
1: yep we'll move on to our final segment of the episode, connecting the dots, as we always like to close off, John will give us a story about personal experiences he's had in his life. John, what are you going to be talking about today? I want to talk
0: about writing the first book, um, my memoir, uh, and so it went via simply the use of my voice and what that was like. So I wrote my first novel when I was 10. yeah, I was ten years old. Uh, was I don't know one hundred fifty pages or so. I wrote another one when I was 12 that was like two hundred fifty pages and then I continued writing screenplays and books, short stories, etc. And then when my vision really began to leave to uh, to vacate, it became a very big challenge uh, as to, okay, well, how do I do this? I don't know how to do this aside from just typing on a keyboard and being able to see well enough to you know, work through spelling and grammar and, and all of that. Well, when I got to graduate school at uh, St. Mary's College in Northern California, I took it upon myself to really focus on doing it All out loud. So I had no real experience in constructing a novel using just my voice. It was all in my mind and then my relationship, a very solitary relationship between myself and uh, my computer. The university was amazing in that a student was brought on to help uh, do scribe work for me. Now, this is before. I went on to uh, study at the Hatland Center and um, figure out how to do this stuff for myself. So in that moment, knowing, okay, I have to meet all of these deadlines, et cetera, et cetera. The only way I'm really gonna get this done is through dictation, being able to dictate uh, a story out loud. Periods, commas, quotation marks, all of that. So I had to go and study. How did other people do this? How were they successful? Practice. Practice a ton, just on my own in uh, in my dorm room. Going back and listening to interviewers such as, oh, at the time I listened to people like um, Howard Stern, Mark Marin, Oprah Winfrey, a number of people who have made really successful careers out of their voice, basically. I had to relearn how to write. Um, and it was an incredibly daunting challenge, truly. And at the start, there were some initial hiccups. I noticed, or when I would hand in assignments and then get them back, uh, my scribe would denote, oh, there's a bunch of uh, you know red marks here and You know, this needs to be changed. This needs to be changed. I thought, well, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so there was a note there. Hey, how about consider some white space? Because this just feels like a million paragraphs that were all meant to read in one fell swoop. Thought, thought, huh, well, that didn't occur to me. That if you're actually looking at a book, you would notice after, you know, the conclusion of a scene or the end of a chapter, there's a great deal of white space on a page, so I'm like, okay, all right. So now I have to begin incorporating that. Same can be said for a lot of the uh, visual flourishes that accompany, you know, books, memoirs, stuff like when a phrase is italicized or underlined or written in boldface. All of that was instrumental. Um, to what would become my path toward uh, writing a couple of books. But I thought it was going to be impossible, truly. And when I arrived on campus, I was incredibly fearful as to, oh my goodness, everyone has such an enormous leg up on me simply by virtue of the fact that they can, you know, see what they're writing and sit down at a keyboard and write, and edit, and work on whatever story they're going to be submitting, you know, just with all of that information right in front of them, and I wasn't going to be able to do that, but I really studied authors, uh, listened to what would turn out to be like a thousand different audiobooks, and kind of figured out how to do it, which sometimes is why Maybe on this podcast, uh, if I have a, a real weakness, it's that sometimes I fall into that, again, that mode of just I'm, I'm dictating a book, whereas that's not what's happening here. But I really had to make a concerted effort to learn how to do it, because otherwise, um, those books that I wrote with the help of somebody that we'll have on uh, on a future episode of the podcast. So I don't want to kind of spoil her story. Now, but I was able to accomplish uh, what I sought to accomplish in, um, in graduate school. Ultimately, like I won uh, the Dean's Award and I got it. a lot of good things happened as a result of taking the time to figure out exactly how to do this and approach it from a methodical, analytical um, perspective. So this is me urging folks, like we always preach on this show, turn the impossible into the possible. Uh, Don't allow fear, feelings about your own inadequacies, your own shortcomings to dictate the scope of what your life is ultimately going to become. You can do it. Seriously, you can do it. So put your head down and get to work.
1: Yeah, control what you can control. It's it's just like our guest Gary said, mm-hmm. you be able to control what you can control, accept what is happening and just do the best that you can do given the situation. And that's what you did with, write, with, with writing these books and you did it the best way that you knew how and the best way that you were capable of doing it. And that's the message to give to everybody is that you just have to control what you can control adapt again that same point just adapt to your situation do the best that you can do that is the biggest message i I take away from this story
0: again we want to as we wrap things up here want to again thank our guest uh gary dodds for coming on the show and uh santino how can the good folks listening at home uh follow us interact with us
1: Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at visionaries underscore podcast. We post these episodes on Spotify and Apple podcast every week. Um, You can, again, find us on Instagram at visionaries underscore podcast. Again, send us a DM. uh, Give us suggestions on what you want us to talk about. Anything you want to say, we are open to receiving those. Give us a follow so you can stay up to date on when these episodes will be out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for your listening pleasure. We thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Visionaries, and we will see you guys next time.
0: Talk to you soon.